y'all. Welcome back to another episode of Chats in the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. Today, I'm chatting with author Tracy Lawson, and she is amazing. Her book is amazing. It's called Answering Liberty's Call, and it's a really cool story based on a true story. So if you're looking for historical fiction, then and you really like learning more about this, is, this particular one takes part in the American Revolution. Um, you want to learn a little bit more details about what the American Revolution was like, living in colonial America at that time, then this is a book that you need to check out. Also, it has a little bit of intrigue, a little bit of spy, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of everything. And if you are a big proponent of um, reading books that have a female heroine in it, then by all means, this is the book for you. Um, I will put it in the show notes, the book. Um, where you can get the book, also where you can follow her on Facebook, Instagram, also follow the Anna Ashby Stone, which is the story based on. There's actually a Facebook page just dedicated to that, as well as where you can buy all of other Tracy's books. So I really hope you enjoy this chat. You guys are in for a treat because she actually reads the very first chapter of her book to you. So I hope you really enjoy this episode and you know what I need you to do right now? That's right. Start listening. Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Today, it's all about writing stories and writing about your family history. And I am so happy to be joined by Tracy Lawson. She wrote the book, Answering Liberty's Call. But before we get into the book, Tracy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, let's see. I grew up in Ohio. I am wife and mom of, I'm an empty nester. I have two cats, live outside of Dallas, Texas, in the oldest house in Wiley, Texas, which is pretty cool. It's an 1880s Victorian, so I write my historical fiction from here. And um, let's see, what else? I started writing about 10 years ago after a 30-year career teaching dance and um, choreographing musicals. I decided to do something that I could do any place we might happen to move in the world, and writing was it. I have nine books to my credit, three nonfiction and six novels, and my most recent release is Answering Liberty's Call, which is based on a family story and stars my six times great-grandparents. Wow. And honestly, you going from a dance to choreographer to a writer, how hard was that transition? It was interesting because my husband took a job at Southern Methodist University in Dallas and our daughter was in high school at the time. And we kind of decided we were going to divide and conquer that he was going to go ahead and move to Dallas and I was going to stay in Ohio with her, let her finish her high school years. And so I thought, well, in the next two years, I've got time to transition. I got to figure out what I'm going to do next because Carrie had always taken dance lessons and my husband ran her back and forth, but the thought of her being off at college and him being home by himself all the time, I thought, you know, I should really try to scale back a little bit, do something else so that we can spend more time together. 
I'd always wanted to be a writer ever since I knew that writers wrote books when I was probably like in kindergarten or first grade, but life had gotten in the way and dance took a lot out of me creatively so that writing and doing choreography at the same time didn't really work at that when I was working at that level. So what I ended up doing was saying, I'm going to take two years and figure out how to be a writer as I transition. So that was pretty much, you know, I, I had a couple of years to plan for it. Now, not all your books are like Answering Liberty's Call. They're kind of different, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. I kind of, um, yeah, I started off with a nonfiction book because I got a copy of a journal that was written by my great-great-great-grandfather, Henry Rogers, in 1838. It was a journal of a trip from Cincinnati to New York City. And I got it as a Christmas gift. And I, my parents knew how much I loved history and family stories. And they were like, Tracy will love this. And of course I did. And I thought, my gosh, there's so much in here I've never heard of or no, I don't know about. I need to share this because nobody else is ever going to view the world like this ever again. And that took me 20 years because I started before the internet and I did it little bits and pieces while I was teaching. But that was the first book that I had published. Now, of course, the goal was always to write a novel. So what I ended up doing was saying, well, after that one came out, now I've got my feet wet. I've tried it. I found a publisher. I've done the thing. Now I'm going to try to write a novel. And, um, and my daughter was still in high school at the time, and so I kind of started looking at things from what kind of a world would I want my daughter not to live in? Mm -hmm. And The Hunger Games and Divergent series had just come out. The Hunger Games movie had just come out while I was writing um, my series, and I had a lot of fun writing a dystopian series for teenagers. But then after that, um, when I heard of the story of Anna Asbury Stone, I switched focus again. But I think the thing that ties all my books together is the pursuit of liberty of individual liberty. And it, it doesn't have to be like a big lofty goal. It can just be, I want to start a business on the frontier and help build America. Or I want to live my life like I want to without too many restrictions on my freedom and my, you know, my decisions. And so I think all my books have that in common, no matter what genre they are. Now you were talking about right before we came on about um, you were learning, you learned a lot of stuff while you were writing Answering Liberty's Call. Oh, that absolutely. you never knew before. So share some tidbits that you've learned. Well, I didn't really realize that um, the thing about the government saying, you know, we've got all these prisoners of war. The British think we're barbarians and they're treating our people like, you know, war criminal, they're war criminals rather than soldiers, enemy combatants. And we've got to rise above it. We've got to treat them as well as we can so that they believe that we're serious and that we're really a real army in a real country, but we can't afford to feed them. So we've got to figure out a way around it. So jo Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin came up with this idea to offer um, a bounty to any um, soldier who would desert. And they, they put it to the Hessians and they said, you know, 50 acres of land and religious freedom and, you know, it, just, just desert, lay down your arms, walk away, look at the farmlands of Pennsylvania, all the good German families that have settled there, find yourself a wife, become an American. And I thought, Golly, that was a great propaganda campaign to work against the British, and I never knew. Wow, that is that is that is so interesting. You wouldn't think people would pay them to desert. I know, and of course, my character Anna is kind of mad about that because her husband is a Baptist in Virginia, where Baptists have been persecuted for you know the last seventy or so years because the Anglicans are not okay with anybody else having a different religious denomination than them. And so when she finds out that they're offering religious liberty to the Hessians, their enemies, she's like, what the heck is going on with this? And there was an awful lot of that going on. It wasn't just a straightforward path to liberty. 
there were an awful lot of hiccups in the road and a lot of things that might have seemed contrary, but were necessary to try and work toward a goal. And so I kind of threw several of those things in the path of my main character to shed light on them because I think a lot of people don't realize what was going on behind the scenes. I also love the fact that this is based on your six-time great-grandparents. Yes. So tell us a little story about Anna. Okay. Well, see, many of my uh, cousins who have since come out of the woodwork, I have made so many new friends and cousins since this book has been in the works. Um, a lot of my cousins grew up hearing this story because it's been handed down through the seven, or like, well, seven generations for me, seven, six great-grandparents, but um, they had 11 children. And so all the branches of the family, it's been handed down. Now, I didn't hear about it till 2013 when I was putting together a book of anniversary for my parents' anniversary. And I wanted to do a, a who do you think you are kind of memory book for them because that's my mom's favorite show. And so I did the genealogy on both sides as far back as I could go. And I threw in any interesting stories. Well, when I came across Anna Asbury Stone on my dad's side, I thought, wow, how wonderful to have a female patriot and somebody who made a, you know, an effort to advance the cause of liberty that was a woman, because you don't really hear that many stories about women. So I was in the middle of my dystopian series when I discovered her story, so I kind of filed it away. But when it was over, and I was looking for something new to write about, my husband and I were driving to visit friends, and we were listening to a podcast, and the host said, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view. And I thought, well, golly, I should do something about that. And then I realized I already had a story that I could use, and it was Anna. And so I pulled out my pen and my notebook, and I started making notes. And the next day, I contacted the regent of the Anna Asbury Stone chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, which is in Cambridge, Ohio, and asked them for any information they would have about Anna. And I started my online research after that. So the genealogy, how long did it take you to create that family tree for your mom and dad? Oh, um, that was going on for about a year because that was about the time I was moving to Texas and my brother and sister and I were all together for lunch one day and they said, you know, what are we going to do for mom and dad's 50th anniversary? And we all had different ideas and I said, well, I kind of wanted to do this memory book. And my brother said, well, I'll kick in on the World War II stuff. And he goes, because I have all grandpa's medals and things like that. So he was doing the research about where our grandfather was during World War II and I was digging around in the other areas. And then my sister filled in where she could. Um, you know, and so we all kind of put it together, but I was the one who figured out how to have it put into a book and everything since I'm the resident author in the family and um, and it worked out really well, but it, it turned out to be a beautiful keepsake and, you know, of course we all ordered one for our own families as well. Um, so we'll have the records. I love that whole idea behind um, researching your family tree. How how do you go about doing that? Because that's something that a lot of people don't know how to do when a lot of older generations are being are, are dying and they're, they're not leaving their stories back. I know, I am really lucky. Um, when I was first married, I moved far from home, got married in Ohio, my husband started grad school in Florida. So we basically got married, packed up the U-Haul and drove south. And when I was away from home for the first time, I was lonely and I was, you know, looking at calling my grandma and I talking, asking her stories about family and she started sending me things and then she found other family stories and some one of her aunts had done a family tree and so she made copies of it all and sent it to me. Now this is long before the internet and long before Ancestry.com so I started off with a bunch of handwritten notes that I had to go through and try and prove. I wrote lots of letters to courthouses asking for birth records. I 
went to the State Library in Tallahassee, Florida, and pulled what genealogy books I could. But you know, it was it was a long, hard slog when you didn't have the internet. But now it's so easy. Ancestry.com is a clearinghouse for information, so you can't take everything you get there at face value. You've still got to verify your sources. You've got to go back to primary source whenever you can, but you can certainly start there. And the way I would recommend starting is to take the oldest relative that you know and start with them and plug in their information. Like if I was to use my great-grandmother and I would say, you know, Zelfa Foote was born in um, you know, 1896, and she died in 1923. And then put that information in mm -hmm. and then see what comes up. And it's pretty easy to build out a tree from there. Now, you're not going to find a lot of information on people that are still living. So you're going to need to talk to the living while you've got them. And then you need to, you know, work your way back. But you can, you can research in other countries. You can get old newspaper clippings. So you can find obituaries and stories. There, there's really no end to what you can find on Ancestry, and a lot of books of local history have been digitized and are available on Google Play as well. Wow, that's just, I mean, it's amazing to me because the, the fact that you were able to create a, fame, a framework to write your novel and yes. fill in little spots, of course you have to kind of take the fictitious author license and create some of the drama and some of the suspense oh. because we, you don't know every detail. But I absolutely, like I said, I absolutely love this book. And when we come back, will you read part of your book for us? I would be happy to. All right, guys, we'll be right back after commercial. Hi, you call me vlogging. I'm actually a blogger. My name is Melissa Vera. I blog Adventures of Frugal Mom. And actually, guys, I actually created a course that I teach in conjunction with Joy Worthy called Intro to Blogging. And it's really quick and simple and easy course to to take. I take the guesswork out of blogging. Basically what it is, is a very basic groundbreaking, ground floor course about intro to blogging. It doesn't get you into the very technical levels about search engine optimizations, plugins, themes, anything like that. It's basically just the basic groundwork that you need to start a blog. A lot of times people get so caught up in doing the trying to make the blog perfect without thinking about the quality of the blog. And they start thinking about things that they shouldn't be thinking about way ahead of the time than they should. I know when I first started blogging, I thought I was over my head. And so I wanted to make it just as simple for someone to be able to do blogging very simply. Some of the things we discuss in our course is whether or not you should um, be self-hosted, if you should use WordPress or another hosting site, um, we also talk about what type of quality or quantity of posts you should have before you publish, how to write an effective about me page, how to um, land some sponsor posts, how to get actually paid. I actually teach another course called Intro to Blogging, which teaches how to get paid for blogging. Um, we also talk about our contact forms, how people being able to contact you, as well as disclosure policies. and basically social media and just a checklist of things that you need to do before you hit publish. Now I teach these courses with Joy Worthy once a month. I teach intro to blogging once a month and I teach um, how to make money blogging once a month, but I also do have private courses as well. All you need to do is contact me. Um, you can go to adventuresfrugalmom at gmail.com and put in the 
in the subject line blogging course and I'll get back to you and I'll share you the spreadsheet and everything and, and we'll kind of work out a way. I do teach one-on-one -on -one classes. I do have a five-week course that you can get a Zoom call with me once a week to kind of go over and strategize what you're going through. It could be group coaching. It could be, it just depends on how many people have signed up. You could be individualized and you never know. So I hope you are, if you're interested in blogging, I hope you will check this course out. And guys, I'm telling you, when I first started blogging, I wish there was someone like me that came along. So I hope you're in, I hope you check it out. Let's get back to blogging. And we are back now. Tracy, are you ready to read part of your book, Answering Liberty's Call? I am. Here we go. I'm going to read chapter one because I think chapter one is the best place to start. So it's um, called None of a Woman's Business. Ridge Road, Chester County, Pennsylvania, January 22nd, 1778. The man following me on this lonely road is nowhere in sight, but that doesn't mean he has given up. He can wait for me to ride Nellie to exhaustion and overtake us at his leisure. Though I want to gallop her, the mare is carrying a full load of provisions. She cannot do more than pick her way through the churned up frozen mud without the risk of coming up lame. Despite the cold, a bead of sweat rolls down my cheek, and my tortured imagination conjures the rush of the oncoming hoofbeats and the swish of a quirt. As I look back, the weak winter sunlight flares along the edge of the ridge, and I shade my eyes as I scan the shadows to make certain we are still alone. His mission must have sounded like a lark, for how difficult could it be to wake, waylay a lone woman and steal the message she carries? A strangled sob escapes my lips, and I clap a gloved hand to my mouth. This is no time for weakness. I've eluded him for two days and kept my wits every time my capture seems certain. The trick I pulled to make my escape just before dawn surely raised his ire and I reckon he'll show no mercy if he overtakes me before I reach Valley Forge. I square my shoulders inside my husband's jacket and trace the outline of the letter concealed in my stays, the only feminine garment I'm wearing at the moment. Eyes gritty with exhaustion, I stand in the stirrups and peer into the darkness ahead. Before I left home, my brother-in-law sketched a crude map to guide me from Virginia to Pennsylvania and marked this stretch with the name of an ordinary he frequented before he deserted from the sharpshooters last month. When I come upon the Seven Stars Inn, I'll know I'm nearing the Continental Army's camp. Nellie shies as something scuttles across the path and rustles into the brush, and I struggle to keep my seat as I rein her down. It's likely not that a possum or raccoon, but telling myself so fails to calm my racing heart. As we carry on, I cast weary glances into shadowy clumps of trees lining the sides of the road. My pursuer may not be the only threat I encounter before I reach the picket line. When I spot the warm glow of candlelight in the building's windows ahead, I lean forward in the saddle in anticipation, and the wooden sign out front, emblazoned with seven stars, bolsters my spirits. Nellie jerks her head toward the incense paddock as if to suggest she wouldn't mind stopping to rest and eat, but super cannot be ours until our task is complete. What's a few more miles when we've already come so far? We can do it, girl! Never one to disappoint, my weary horse minces onward. Minutes tick by, and when we pass a mile marker at a crossroads, it has grown too dark to read the sign, but I remind myself it is just a few miles more. Further on, my scalp crinkles when a wolf howls somewhere in the hills to the north. Now my ears are attuned to every sound, but after that solitary cry, I discern only the creak of leather, the rasp of the rough fabric of my borrowed breeches, and the clop-clop of Nellie's hooves. 
As we round a bend in the road, pinpoints of light flip through the darkness ahead, the way fireflies dot the hills at home on summer nights. Is this my destination or an obstacle in my path? Someone raises a light in greeting. Words in the German tongue drift from up ahead and my breath snags in my chest. Could they be Hessians this far west? My mother tried to dissuade me from making this journey with whispered suppositions of what enemy soldiers will do to a defenseless woman. Though my first instinct is to wheel, I must complete my mission, and retreat will drive me into the clutches of the man who lurks somewhere behind me. I settle my cocked hat more firmly on my head and turn up the coat collar. In this disguise, I could be mistaken for a lad of 13 or 14 instead of a 29-year-old mother of three, but my voice will betray me. Shadowy forms in a horse-drawn cart block the road. Perhaps they're a foraging detail. Hoping it's just these few, without a saddle horse to give chase, I bark, Basketervor! It's the only phrase I know in their language that makes sense under the circumstances, and I wonder, just as I've asked, what goes on here? One man responds in a rapid stream of German. Lantern light falls across his face as he comes closer, showing leathery skin and bags beneath roomy eyes. He is unarmed, his rough coat and breeches those of a farmer, not a soldier. Reverting to my normal voice, yet poised for flight, I called, I beg your pardon, do you speak English? A boy steps up beside the old man and answers, I do, missus. Please, how far to Valley Forge? Near 10 miles. Every weary bone in my body seems to cry out in disappointment. I push the limits of Nellie's endurance today to put 30 miles behind us and it isn't enough. Well, then I must make haste. Do I stay on this road? Yeah, there to the right at the fork ahead. In the flickering light, two sets of dirty bare feet protrude from under a ragged blanket on the cart. What is going on here? There's soldiers with fever in the church up yon. I'm Jakob Hippel. He jerks his thumb toward the older man. This is my grandfather, Lorenz. He offered land to lay the dead to rest. We're taking bodies to the ice house until we get a thaw. But these soldiers, where are they from? Pennsylvania, mostly, but there were some from Virginia. Dread chills my blood. Do you know their names? Sorry, Mrs. You can ask Herr Doctor at the church. The boy swings his lantern toward a whitewashed log building a short distance down the road. My brothers are with the 3rd Virginia. I received word that they were ill. May I see these men's faces? I urge Nellie up beside the cart and steal myself as Jacob relays my request, and old Lorenz turns back the blanket. My two errands, both urgent and of mere equal importance to me, lead to the same destination, Valley Forge. I haven't considered what I'll do if Henry and Jeremiah are in hospital elsewhere. Jakob holds his lantern up over the wagon bed, and letter's corner presses against my bosom as I lean forward and study the slack, hairy faces. I breathe a sigh of relief. These are not my brothers. Why is the hospital so far from the Continental's camp? But there are field hospitals all over the country, in churches, barns, and houses. And my heart plummets at this news. My brothers could be languishing anywhere. Most obliged. As I dig my heels into Nellie's ribs, the mare, caught dozing, surges forward in alarm. She carries me to the church, where, unable to suppress a groan as my feet hit the ground, I loop the reins over the handrail and hurry up the wooden steps. It's a risk to stop, but I can't take the chance of riding right past my brothers. A tired-looking man with hair as fluffy as carded wool meets me in, at the door, candle in hand. See here, boy. Removing the hat reveals my face and my long hair straggling loose from its tail. He squints and raises his candle higher. Beg your pardon, madam. Doctor, please. I've come from Virginia seeking my brothers, soldiers who have taken ill. May I see if they are among your patients? 
The gestures you made to the sanctuary were rough benches pushed against the walls make room for two rows of men laid out on cots and pallets. In my haste, I forget to take shallow breaths and gag as the stench of sickness, unwashed bodies, and human waste assaults my nostrils. If they're not here, you might try Captain Francis's barn off Collins Road. Candlelight falls on the drawn faces of the men. Their beards crawl with lice and fleas, but they're so far gone with fever they don't seem to notice. At the end of the row, I stoop to lift the blankets, covering four corpses on the floor. As I start down the second row, hope surges in my chest. Perhaps my brothers have recovered since my husband posted his letter, and they'll be on picket duty when I arrive at Valley Forge. My vision of a happy reunion melts away when the last cot, a young soldier clutches my coat sleeves, staring up at me with glassy eyes. Ma? Everything will be all right. As I smooth the hair off his clammy forehead, he relaxes at my touch. His skin looks waxy, bloodless. Don't go, Ma. Please. I'm afeard. Shh, now. I'm here. Don't fret. In my experience, all sick children cry out for their mothers. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. As I add my silent prayer that a kind woman has been there to console my brothers, the young soldier closes his eyes and a rasping breath escapes his lips. His hand falls to his side. The doctor hovers nearby. Was that your brother, madam? No. I blink back tears. I fear the rest will soon follow if I have exhausted my supply of medicines. I have tea in my saddlebag that brings down fever. I'll fetch some. Knowing I can help quickens my steps. My first lungful of fresh air should be a relief, but it turns to a gasp. The jingle of a horse's bit carries on the still night air, and my skin prickles as intuition warns me of danger. One of the men on the road motions toward the church with a lantern, and I hear hoofbeats on the frozen ground. When the old doctor joins me, I take him into my confidence. I'm in danger. I carry an urgent message for General Washington. The rider approaching has been trying to steal it from me since I left York. He raises an eyebrow. A lady spy racketing around the countryside dressed as a boy, carrying secret dispatches and medicinal teas. No, sir, not a spy, a patriot. Everything I've told you is true. Well, remain inside out of sight. But what of my horse and my bundles? He cannot fail to notice. Leave it to me. The doctor extinguishes the candle, leaving the sanctuary lit only by the glowing embers in the fireplace. As I duck inside, he hurries out and clucks to Nellie. Then there's a thud, which must be the provisions, cut loose from behind my saddle and dropping to the ground. My knife slips from the sheath with a hiss as the approaching hoofbeats slow to a walk. Where is she? My pursuer's voice cuts the air like the blade I hold clutched to my chest. You mean the woman who swapped this winded animal for mine? Water sloshes. The doctor sets a bucket in front of Nellie, who submerges her muzzle, drinking noisily. Well, what's your business with her? Well, that's none of your concern. What road did she take? Well, she doubled back to the Seven Stars, says she'd return my horse tomorrow. Leather creaks as my pursuer dismounts. At the thud of his heavy boot on the stairs, I shrink away from the door. When I called at the tavern, she was not within. That boy said she was here. The doctor brought up short, hems and haws before he speaks long. She must have taken the south road. He gives a disbelieving snort. I'll have a look inside to make sure. There's no other door through which to escape, and my eyes dart around for a place to hide. The doctor's voice rings out. There's sickness within. You have a pox, sir? He will spot me beneath the cot, and the reeking pile of dirty laundry in the corner is too small to burrow into. The man scoffs as he continues up the steps. I won't be long. The doctor tries again. That's a nasty gash you have there. Shall I clean it and stitch it up for you? No, it's but a trifle. 
In desperation, I grab the topmost soiled sheet, take off my hat, and lie on the floor beside the dead soldiers. The stink of disease and decay surrounds me as the sheet comes to rest against my face. Though I am immune to the pox, only God knows what other diseases afflict these men. I cannot dwell on what I may contract from this filthy covering, but I tuck my chin so that the sheet does not brush against my mouth. No sooner am I settled than the door creaks. As I await my fate, my thoughts run first to my children, Rhoda, Elijah, Lord. What if I die in the service of my country? Will they ever know what became of me? And what if my husband, Benjamin, and my brothers? Failure to, to deliver the message puts them and everyone in the army in even greater jeopardy. The man swears and wretches in his vomit hits the floor of this flat. You call this a hospital? It's not but a pest house. I warned you. The doctor doesn't sound sorry at all. The floorboards tremble beneath the man's tread as he draws near. I exhale slowly and breathe through my mouth. I cannot expect the old doctor to overpower him. On my vow, an unmarked grave will not be my final resting place. Every mus muscle in my body tenses as I prepare to defend myself. Candlelight glows through the threadbare sheet as he bends close. I manage not to flinch as he pulls back the blankets on the corpses one by one, but my hand clenches on the knife's handle. The doctor's voice is gruff. Are you an utter fool? Don't you know those blankets carry disease? Do you want to end up in the ice house with the dead? The man wretches again, and the candlelight grows fainter as he backs away from my hiding place. She took the south road, did you say? Yes, if you heeded me the first time, you've caught up to her by now. Well, my new bride is headstrong, and I'm used to a firm hand. In time, I will school her. Grim pride surges past my ebbing terror. It is I who has been schooling and besting him for the past two days. When his mouth's hoof beats fade, I creep out to where the doctor loads my bundles back on behind Nellie's saddle. He has acquitted himself admirably in my defense. I never would have married such a man. My husband is a sergeant and a chaplain in the 3rd Virginia. Indeed, madam, I did not believe a word that Blackwood said. Do you know the way to Valley Forge? He pulls the rope taut. No, but I must get there tonight. Will the south road bring him into my path? They do not intercept, but once he reaches that road's end, he's sure to double back. It doesn't give you much of a start. Deep in the saddlebag, my fingers close around one of the tins of peppermint and yarrow tea. Thank you for putting him off my trail. This will help bring those lads feverish down. He nods. Now, mark me. Stay on this road past Gordon's Ford and the White Horse Inn, and then take the right-hand fork. From there, it's not but a mile to the picket line. Back in the saddle, I clap my heels against Nellie's ribs, and the mare, refreshed, turns up dirt and gravel as she takes off. Under the waning moon's illumination, I can see well enough to avoid patches of ice and the stumps and boulders protruding from the road's scarred surface. The state of the road and the substantial stone houses looming in the darkness every quarter mile or so lead me to believe this is a well-traveled highway during the day. Two hours gone, we pass the village of Gordon's Ford, and soon after, a flickering fire in an iron brazier illuminates the painted sign for the White Horse Inn. Subtle pressure from my left knee is all that's needed to guide Nellie toward the curving downhill fork, and I turn at an angle to help her negotiate the icy slope. The road leads into the deep shadow of a grove of trees, and we continue slowly while I wait in vain for my eyes to adjust. When minutes pass with no relief to the darkness, I murmur to cheer her and keep my worries at bay. I'll make sure the soldiers give you a nice, warm bed of hay when we arrive. You've done all I could ask and more. What a good girl you are. No sooner are the words out of my mouth than Nellie shies and rears. Launched from the saddle as the leaven shot out of a cannon, I land in a graceless sprawl in the road. She snorts and clatters off. Everything hurts. Biting back tears, I sit up and press both hands over the torn knee of my breeches. 
Blood seeps into the fabric, but the cut doesn't seem serious enough to bind. Rubbing my hands clean on my britches, I feel around for the hat and put it on over my tumbled hair. And staggering to my feet, I call out, Nellie, come back. Where are you? As I take a tentative step, the toe of my boot catches on the rutted road, sending me headlong onto the frozen ground. I might be steps from shelter or from some unseen hazard. Only one thing is certain, I cannot lie here in the road when every second counts. I want to, though. I want to kick my heels and curse the circumstances that brought me to this point. Over and over, I've been told the war with the British is none of women's affairs. So why is it me, and not some man, out in the cold night, without my mount, desperate to deliver a message that could change the war's outcome? Oh, bloody hell. I would never utter such an oath aloud, but in my thoughts, perhaps it doesn't count. I made this journey for Benjamin and our children, and their children's children, down through the ages to come. Benjamin is willing to fight and die for the cause of liberty. My cause is keeping him alive to witness that freedom come to pass. Nothing deters my first halting steps. But hoofbeats, punctuated by the sound of metal on metal, grow louder. The animal is not moving fast, but my disorientation is so profound I can't seem to get out of the way. As it bears down on me, a muzzle and trailing reins brush across my upraised hand. Nellie? This time, the horse's nose bumps against my face, and as I grab for the reins, skittish, she rears again. Fear of her metal-shod hooves makes me stumble back. Time slips past me. Has my pursuer come on the right road? I grit my teeth, compose myself, and speak in a crooning voice. I will get to Valley Forge tonight and tend to my brothers. I will deliver that letter to the general and have a cup of coffee before the fire and take a bath. Won't it be? Oh, honestly, Nellie. The mare tosses her head and refuses to be still. I've lost my riding crop somewhere in the dark, but I could never bear to beat my exhausted, frightened pack. With effort, I set aside my anxiety and frustration, put my hand behind my back as if I might produce a treat and sink into a curtsy. Your Majesty. Perhaps Nellie will respond to the trick she learned long ago. She paused the ground, and I visualize her as she kneels, bowing her head along her extended right leg. Good girl, steady now. My hand closes around the reins, a lifeline in the darkness, and I run my other hand down her side to find a stirrup. Then I sing out, charmed, I'm sure, and Nellie rises. Me shaking with fatigue as my weight leaves the ground, I feel all my fresh bumps and bruises as I land in the saddle. Every minute seems like an hour as Nellie picks her way through the darkness. Some of my tension ebbs away as we emerge from the forest, and I can see the road ahead curve uphill toward a large house. Then a wind draws my attention to a horse and rider, halted near the brazier burning at the house's front door. Stifling a scream, I recognize both the white horsing and the man who pursues me. I've been traveling the wrong way. Wow. I will say that first chapter really grabs you because then you go back and you start giving all the backstory. So you're like, okay, what happened next? Right. I, I set it up just like the first episode of Breaking Bad, where you start off with the, the moment of reckoning and then you find out what was what her life was like before. And that's when you start to see the family relationships and uh, and what brought her to this circumstance. So how much did you have to kind of embellish a little bit on her story? Well, let's see. The, um, when the DAR chapter was formed in 1923, the first historian of the chapter, who was a great-great-granddaughter of Anna's, who had grown up hearing the story, wrote an account called The Story of Anna Asbury Stone, which was published by the DAR. I used that as my framework. So that basically laid out um, some facts that when Benjamin enlisted, he took Anna and their three children to stay with family, that when she heard of the privations at Valley Forge, she decided she could not stay at home by herself and pray and worry. She had to go do something. 
When she got to York, Pennsylvania, she was asked by a congressman to carry a secret message to General Washington, warning him of a conspiracy against him. And she was pursued all the rest of the way because even though the congressman said, oh, no one will suspect a woman of carrying anything important, well, um, they, their secret was found out and she was pursued the rest of the way to Valley Forge. And then um, after delivering the message, you know, what happened after that is also laid out in the basic story. So I didn't have any dialogue. I didn't really have any familial relationships. So I went back to the family tree and I looked at who had siblings and what their ages were and, you know, built out family units and assigned personalities to the, the siblings. And uh, one thing in particular, I thought, well, two brothers who are very close in age would need to be very different and distinct mm -hmm. themselves. And so um, I made Benjamin's older brother, Thomas, I kind of modeled him after my own brother, who is, uh, he's always up to something, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And because uh, when, when Thomas comes home and they're like, well, how could you, how could you just leave? He's like, oh, don't worry about it. They'll be glad to see me when I come back in the spring. Like, just like deserting the army was no big. You know, that's, my brother would basically smooth his way into out of whatever he wanted to do. But then I thought, well, Benjamin, the, the next youngest brother, is earnest and a preacher and, and so very honest and an abolitionist and all these things. And I can just imagine all these two boys just like wailing heck out of each other every day of their childhood because they're just that different and they're so close in age. But then if anyone tries to attack one or the other of them, that they would be their brother's greatest champion. So I, I developed a, a relationship like that between the brothers and uh, it was a lot of fun to write the dialogue between the young people and, you know, especially during the courting and the, and the weddings and stuff like that. It's, it's very fun to uh, imagine they were just people just like we are. And uh, I also love the backstory of Anna when she was younger. Was that also included in, in your research that you found? That I found separately. Now, see, that was one of the details that was lost to the main story because both written out versions, because um, there's two stories that have been written and published that relate to Anna's um, ride to Valley Forge, and they both say Anna was taken to her father's house, but her father died in 1758 when Anna was just nine years old, and I found his will, inventory, and death, you know, record of his death and all that stuff, and what would have made her life so much harder, and in that I found her motivation for making this trip beyond just being, you know, a devoted wife and sister who loves her husband and loves her brothers, there was a really solid reason why she did this. Um, the laws governing widows and orphans in the colonies in the 1700s, women had no rights. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, when you married, you, there was a thing called coverture, and you became one with your husband in a legal sense as well as in a marital sense in that he handled all the property. He, you know, anything he brought to the marriage became his. The children were his. So if you deserted the marriage, then he kept the children. And I think this was one of the things that kept the divorce rate exceedingly low because women could, have, could not go out on their own and afford to you know, support themselves unless they were independently wealthy. And the fact that you might leave your children in an abusive situation would keep many women there to protect their children. Okay, so if your father dies, you're an orphan, even if your mother's still there to care for you. And so if your father did not leave enough money to support the family, um, for however long it took for the children to grow up, the children could be taken from the mother and put into apprenticeships or indentured servitudes um, because supporting the indigent was something that many small communities simply couldn't do. They had to get everybody, had to be productive. You know, there simply wasn't a tax base to support anybody who needed public assistance. 
So that would, it sounds cruel to us to take little children away from their parents and put them in serving made jobs or apprentice them at very young ages, but that was just simply how they, the only way they could do it at the time. So I don't know if Anna was really made an indentured servant, but I did take the fictionalized Anna and made her an indentured servant so that I could shed light on the plight of children who were in that situation. But just the fear of you know, the privation she would have suffered when, because when her father died, his will was worth um, $50. And $50 in those days translates to about $9,000 today. But it was all in household goods and livestock. It wasn't any real estate. There were, there were no slaves. And because they were in Virginia, you know, if you were wealthy, you would have had slaves. And they, they didn't have anything that was of value that could sustain the family. And so they would have been plunged into abject poverty very quickly. And I think it was Anna's uncle William, who was more, um, it was her father's younger brother, was more well off. And he, I think he took care of the of second family um, based on what I've seen because they all moved west one county when Anna was a teenager. And so I, I kind of had to invent that situation. But I think if that was the prevailing law at the time, when Anna looked at her life and said, okay, if all if my husband and all three of my brothers die, I'm right back where I started, except now I've got three little children. And so she was probably not content to sit back and let that happen to her children. And that was the reason for making this incredibly foolish decision. You know, it could have gone so badly. Yep. I took two or three days thinking about all the things that could have gone wrong. And it just, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, how could you have done that? You know, you could have disappeared and nobody would have ever known what became of you. And yeah. uh, absolutely so brave of her to have taken this, uh, undertaken this job and this journey. Definitely, because a woman traveling alone during that time was unheard of and unsafe. Absolutely unsafe, because again, women were thought of as property. You weren't thought of as a, you know, a person who was deserving of respect. And so, you know, we, we talk about cultures today where women are not allowed to travel anywhere without a husband or a brother or a father to protect them. But it wasn't all that different, and especially with you know soldiers about it, you know, because the British soldiers had a very bad reputation. There were an awful lot of them that were, um, you know, that were disciplined for um, assaulting women, and they they kind of acted surprised that the, that the women of the colonies would be so, uh, you know, would object so much mm -hmm. to a tumble in the, in the hedges, you know. So it's, uh, <laughs> it was, but yes, and so traveling by oneself at that point you pretty much held yourself out as being a prostitute and and i think in her haste she you know i don't know if she knew that was a, a possibility or she hadn't ever been out and about enough to know but um my fictional anna gains skills as she goes on her journey doesn't she, mm -hmm. she starts off very very confident of her ability to weather whatever is put before her and then she realizes pretty quickly that she's out of her depth and she's got to uh step up her game so that she'll be but then when, when the big challenge gets put in front of her, she is actually, uh, you know, she's fair fixed to, uh, to handle it. So Yeah, she is. I mean, the bravery that she showed and the fact that it's based on someone in your family, that's going to show a lot of pride for you when you're reading this book and you hear all and you hear readers talk about how much they love the story. Like we were talking about right before we came on how I didn't Google her until after I read the story because I didn't want to go in with any preconceived notions. And I was like, wow, to actually know that a, a real life woman did this during the Revolutionary War was amazing. So that's going to be a, a source of pride for you. Absolutely. And one of my cousins read it and then she texted me and she said, 
I loved it. I just wish that every word of it was true. You know what I mean? And she didn't mean like you were making stuff up. It's like she mm-hmm. wished we could verify exactly what happened to her. And somebody asked me in another interview um, if I could talk to somebody in the past or the future, who would it be? And I said, well, I would want to talk to Anna and say, how much of it did I get right? You know, what, what did you really go through? I, I wanted to know. And, um, yeah, because there were so many things that could have gone wrong. And it would have taken an inordinate amount of bravery to do that. And now, do you see it going any further than the book? Do you see maybe doing movies, TV series? Oh, well, that would be wonderful, but that would be, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm not an expert in those realms. So um, hopefully, if, you know, I'm, I'm looking to get discovered if anybody's <laughs> out there with, who wants a great, uh, you know, a great thrilling story for um, a historical script, you know, that kind of thing. Would, I would be pleased as anything if something like that happened. Um, I think the story is complete as it is with Anna, but I do plan to continue with other revolutionary ladies that you may or may not have heard of because I think Anna did a wonderful thing and I think she's not the only one. She's not mm-hmm. the only awesome woman that we have never heard of who was just as brave as the men and who did amazing things to further the cause of liberty during our fight for independence. Now, if you had to pick one actress going back to seeing it as a movie or TV, one actress to play Anna, who do you think would play Anna? Oh, my goodness. Your dream person. I didn't even think about that. I wasn't prepared for that question. Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, Let's see. Who do I love? There's so many great actresses out there right now, and there's so many people doing good things. Um, I think about the women who are in the the show Turn, um, Washington Spies, that was on AMC a couple of years ago. And, and you think that you need somebody who is comfortable with um, historical things, too. So, golly, I have to get back to you on that one. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, have them, I have them pictured in my head, but I don't have necessarily an actor or actress. But, but they just came through so clearly to me. And, you know, she she spoke as I was working. And, I, and other authors probably tell you that, too, that when you really get into it, you sit around and you wait for them to say things. And and somebody starts talking and then you just write down what they say. So she's, uh, she's definitely been real to me. Now you just mentioned you're working, you're starting to work on others about other women in the revolution, mm-hmm. just the revolutionary war or throughout history. Well, gosh, I learned so much about life in the colonial period in the 1770s. I figure I need to write a couple more novels in that time period just to use up that information. Because now that I know, the clothes and the food and the mannerisms and even the slang, you know, you, you feel like you got to stick with it for a little while to, uh, to use it up. Wow. So after that's done, what are you going to go back to the post apocalyptic style writing or you think you're going to stay um, in the historical writings? No, I, I like the historical um, because I liked writing nonfiction history too. And so the non the historical fiction is kind of like the perfect combination to me because I get to research mm-hmm. and I get to make stuff up. And so doing both, but I mean, I love writing the post apocalyptic series. Um, I think it nails 2020 pretty closely, closely mm-hmm. to the point where, I went through it recently and I was like, oh, check, 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 check. All the things that were happening in the past 12 months that in my novels, it was like, if we gave into fear, what would, what would happen? Mm-hmm. We let ourselves get into fear. And I think in a lot of ways, we let ourselves get into fear. But these were things that were restrictions imposed by the government 
because of the fear of terrorism. And among them were food deliveries, everybody working from home, empty sports stadiums where the teams played with nobody in the stands. And um, there was a scene where they were handing out antidote to keep you safe from the from the poisons in the air. And a pregnant woman said, I'm not sure if it's safe. I don't want to take it unless I know if it's safe. Could I just get a gas mask instead? And the, the government worker looked up at her and she said, I'm sorry, we don't issue gas masks to civilians. And I was like, oh, well, I looked at that a long time ago. And it's just... <laughs> <laughs> so, so my resistance series books. If you want to see how 2020 ends, you know that's what um, with, with the storming of the Capitol. One of my friends on Facebook was like, "Oh my gosh, what next?" And I said, "Oh, I already know how this ends." <laughs> because, <you> know, <laughs> because I know it. And and of course, my you know the series wraps with you know a big conflagration. Because what else? You know, how else do you affect change? And not that I'm condoning anything that happened in 2020. And and I did not get the toilet paper. I want, to, I want to go on record as saying that was the one part of it all that I did not foresee because who could <laughs> that mess anyway, but it was um, but it was very interesting to see within the dystopian genre when you're thinking, okay, people are giving into fear, you know, I, I do this because I'm afraid of something even worse happening to me, even though what's happening to me is already bad. You know, that was kind of my theme in the dystopian stuff. So um, it was fun. And it was fun to write the whole thing all the way to the end. I love those characters. And if, you know, anybody who's listening to this, if dystopia is your bag, you know, you ought to check those out too because they're they're also on my website. And if you just go to Amazon.com and use my name, it'll pull up all my books. But, but yeah, I did enjoy writing the story and having Tommy and Kareem be my heroes in that one too. So. so our time is almost up. So what little nugget can you give like a little tip since we talked about writing a family story as a framework for people that are looking for their family stories, what little tip will you give them? Well, like I said, start with, um, start with ancestry and then you've got to go wide. You've got to think about what you get on ancestry is like an onion. And then you need to start peeling the onion. Now ancestry, we can add documents to it. So a lot of times you'll find things like um, birth certificates or, excerpts from books or World War One draft cards, things like that, that can lead you in other directions that will tell you where they were living at a certain time. And then you go a little bit wider and you say, okay, what was happening in that part of the country at that time? And that will give you more insight as to what was going on in your families. You know, were they suffering from drought? Were there, was there an attack of grasshoppers? Like we're having cicadas in, in Ohio right now. You know, the 17-year cicadas are about to come out. And so you wonder what was going on that was affecting them. Was there an attack of cholera that year that laid families out? You know, did, did I have one family where the girls, she died on her actual wedding day. She got, she caught cholera the week before her wedding. She died on the day she was supposed to get married. And, you know, when you see somebody die young, you want to dig a little bit more and figure out what might have happened. And I found that her parents died just a few months after she did, and they died within a week of each other. So that was obviously an epidemic of some kind. You know, you can, but start with ancestry and get dates. And like I said, verify, 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 because you can't always count on. Because I found that Benjamin Stone's death date has been incorrectly reported for a couple of hundred years now. And um, because I was, I know, I was, I, was in a digi I was in a courthouse in West Virginia where the records have never been digitized. And so they're not available on ancestry.com. So sometimes you've got to actually go out in the field and do your research there. 
but I was in, um, I was researching my next book, which is a field guide to the historic mills of West Virginia, and I found all these documents and records with Anna and Benjamin and one of their sons, and one of them said um, something about Anna being a widow and relict of Benjamin Stone deceased in 1830. Well, that's three years before his death was reported in 1833 on all the documents I had seen so far. Hmm. But I found another document that showed um, he was dead before August 7, 1829, because they had filed papers in court to help settle. He was heir to another estate that hadn't even settled yet. So that when he died, they needed to file more papers and get somebody to act on his behalf in that one. So you have to keep digging. And even if you think you've got the answer, you don't always have the answer. Wow. Be, get, be in it for the long haul because I'm still researching Anna and Benjamin, even though the book has been published since January. And I keep finding more things. I found that they they manumitted slaves that they received as part of that inheritance in the 1820s, and that made me so happy and proud that they really truly were abolitionists, like the family like the family legend said, mm -hmm. and that they were uh, you know about treating people fairly even in that early time when it wasn't always um, you know. Wow, I just love that. Now tell people where they can find you at. Okay, yes, I am active on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, on Facebook, I'm Tracy Lawson author and also on Instagram. And then also my website is tracylawsonbooks.com. If you'd like a signed copy of any of my books, you can track me down on tracylawsonbooks.com. I've got a shopping cart there. And also on my um, Facebook author page, you just need to go through and click through and you can you know, buy the book and then I will sign it personally to you and, and send it out. And uh, the books are, of course, available other places too, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Walmart.com, all of those, um, you know, all the online retailers, you can find the book anyplace. Well, Tracy, I want to thank you so much for coming on and not only sharing Answering Liberty's call right here, guys, but also sharing your family's story because your family story is so interesting. I cannot wait till find out who the next person that you kind of showcase in your next book. Thank you. She's a very worthy lady. And she left a series of 10 letters explaining her by telling about her life during 1779 and 1780. So I'm using those as the basis for her story. Oh, wow. I cannot wait to read it. Any um, idea when it will come out? Uh, not yet, but I, as soon as I get this, I've got one that's got to get to the, um, to the publisher by August, and then after that, I'm full-time on this next one. So I'm going to, I've got about 30,000 words written on the first draft, but I, I have a pretty good idea of how I'm going to proceed with it and everything. So hopefully I'll be on it pretty quickly here. Yep. Well, I want to read it when it comes out. <laughs> I know. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. So thank you so much, Tracy, for being on. And guys, we will see you on the next episode of Chats from the Block Cabin. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Y'all, I cannot say enough good things about this book. Um, I can't wait to have Tracy back. We've already talked about coming up in... Um, having her come back on since she's really big about research and genealogy she's actually going to do some um i'm going to do it dig a little bit into my genealogy and she's going to come back on to talk about what else she found and how she how we could create what we both found into a like historical fiction so i'm really excited about this project it probably won't be till fall but i would love i love chatting with her um 
please like leave a rating review wherever you subscribe to this podcast if you don't subscribe click that subscribe button so you're notified for each new episode and as you can see i'm putting out a lot of content i'm thinking now it's going to three episodes a week because guys and there's just so many amazing people that i have lined up to chat with that i cannot it would be into next year where i would be booked so i'm trying very hard to get it to three episodes a week um but yeah thank you so much for being a podcast um subscriber listener family friend um be blessed and remember keep chatting